we started last week a study in the book of Nehemiah, and if anything, the book of Nehemiah is about gaining a fresh perspective when we face overwhelming opportunities, challenges, and difficulties in life. That's what it's about. If you remember, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes I of Persia. And in his sovereignty, God put Nehemiah at that particular time in the king's court in a very, very important position. The cupbearer was one that was highly trusted by the king, but who also had frequent access to the king. And so in his sovereign hand, God put Nehemiah right in the court of this very, very powerful king. And as a result of that, Nehemiah now faced the greatest opportunity and the greatest challenge of his life. And we as a church are given, I think, the greatest opportunity that we will have literally in a generation. When we talk about trans. Uh, transforming the heart of the city of Greenville. I think about that, how just as God had sovereignly put Nehemiah in the court of that king, in his sovereignty, God has put us right in the heart of this city. And we know what, how this city's growing. We know what's happening here in the city. I was in Orlando this week, and somebody asked me where I was from, and I said, Greenville. They said, oh, we've heard about it. That's what's happening here. And where we sovereignly, God has put us right here in the heart of this city. And so as I talk today, I'm going to be talking about Nehemiah. I'm going to be talking about us corporately as a church facing this great opportunity. But I want to get right into the pew. Because there are some of you who are facing major opportunities, major challenges, transitions, differences in your life. How do we learn from that? How do we navigate through these major opportunities and challenges of life? And that's where Nehemiah fits in. And so as I talk today, I'm going to be talking about Nehemiah. I'm going to be talking about us corporately as a church facing this great opportunity. But I want to get right into the pew. Because there are some of you who are facing major opportunities, major challenges, transitions, differences in your life. How do we learn from that? How do we navigate through these major opportunities and challenges of life? And that's where Nehemiah fits in because he gives us principles that help us understand how to do that. Now, very quickly, I have to give you the quick background in case you weren't here last week. Uh, Richard covered this, but remember what's happened here. The problem was that in Nehemiah's day, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were still in ruins. Uh, it was the, the city who had been destroyed in 587. The Babylonians, you remember King Nebuchadnezzar, you read Daniel, and that's a king, and how the king, Nebuchadnezzar, led the Babylonian army there, and they literally destroyed the city. They knocked all the walls of the city down. They destroyed the temple. They desecrated the temple. In fact, if you go there today, you'll still see ruins that date way back where the city has been destroyed multiple times. But in this case, Nebuchadnezzar led them totally destroyed, took the people captive, remember, for about 70 years. Some 50 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, the Persian Empire emerges 
as the most powerful empire. It defeats the Babylonians under King Cyrus. It was King Cyrus, the Persian king, who issued a decree that allowed the people who had been in exile to return to Jerusalem. There would be three movements of those people. The first movement would be under a man named Zerubbabel, and you'll read that in the first four chapters of the book of Ezra. And then there was a second movement under Ezra, the priest. That's the rest of the book of Ezra. And then the third movement is under Nehemiah. And we can pinpoint the date to 445 B.C., and that's when Nehemiah then leads this third group back. And if you were here last week, Richard showed you how... Nehemiah had been anxiously awaiting the time when he would hear a report, what's going on with the exiles who's gone back. And when he gets the report, it wasn't a good report. Those who survived the exile or back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when Nehemiah heard this, he was heartbroken. In fact, he said, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for some days, I mourned and I fasted and I prayed. He immediately, when he hears this news, he's in mourning. The very first thing he does is he goes to the Lord in prayer. And he realizes that if God is not in this thing, that he is not going to be able to help solve the problem back in Jerusalem. Now, four months go by from chapter 1 to chapter 2. So let me pick up in chapter 2 now, the first eight verses. Uh, this is God's word. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in the presence of the king before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my father's was buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it that you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked him, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. And I also said to him, If it pleases the king... May I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? And then you come to this wonderful verse. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Now, you get the idea, on this particular day, Nehemiah was going about his normal act. Four months later, he's going about his normal activities, and so he goes into the king, but the king notices something different about him. He, he looked at his face, and he said, why are you so sad? And, of course, Nehemiah was 
disturbed spiritually. He was heartbroken and his countenance showed his sadness. And it was unusual that Nehemiah would be that way. In fact, if you look at verse 1, it says, I had not been sad in his presence before. And so the king says to him, why does your face look so sad? And did, did you catch the next line? And once he asked him that question, Nehemiah said, I was very much afraid. And let me tell you, he had every reason to be afraid. I don't know what you remember about your study of some of the ancient empires, and particularly the Persian Empire, but when you knew something about the kings of the Persians, they were cruel and ruthless and demanding. They were a bit paranoid. I mean, Nehemiah was the cupbearer, which meant he had to taste the wine before he took it to the king to make sure nobody had poisoned it. And Nehemiah knew he was going to go to this king, and the king didn't like people who were gloomy in his presence, and he was suspect of any of his subordinates who would make requests of him. That was just the nature of Persian kings. But on top of that, there was even more to it. If you go back to Ezra chapter 4, Nehemiah is about to ask the king to reverse a decision that the king had already made. Some years before, a group of people, enemies of God's people, wrote a letter to this king. And they basically said this, you better watch those people. Don't let them rebuild that city. Don't let them rebuild those walls. Read their history. They're a bunch of troublemakers. Look at their history. Look at what they've done. And besides that, if you let them build that city, guarantee you it's going to be trouble. They will not pay tribute to it. I mean, that was in the letter. And so the king gets the letter, and he reads it, and he makes a decision. Cease all work. All right. Now, remember, this is a Persian king. And the Persian kings did not like to be challenged. And Nehemiah was about to go ask him now to change his mind. And so when he goes to him, this is his great opportunity, his great opportunity. And so he says to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed with fire? And then he asks the question, here's the king, what do you want? Now let me tell you something. This was a, you know, if we could put this on as a drama up here. This was a breathtaking moment. And so what is the very first thing that Nehemiah does? He said, then I prayed to the God of heaven. Now look, if there's anything I want to leave you with this morning, it's the priority of prayer. Whenever we're facing a major opportunity, a major challenge, difficulties, transitions, a big project like we have here, it has to be bathed in prayer. He turned to the God of heaven. It tells you how Nehemiah pictured God, the God of heaven, the one who is all sovereign, the one who is in control of all things. And he had prayed earlier, Oh Lord, let your, ser let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. 
Give success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man was the king. For four months, Nehemiah had been praying that he would gain the favor of this king. And so Nehemiah, Nehemiah shared his request respectfully and clearly. He said, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And if you go ahead and read the rest of this chapter, you're going to find out that obviously Nehemiah in that four months had done a lot of homework. He had come up with a careful plan. He realized what supplies he needed. He asked the king for letters to get supplies. He knew that traveling back into Jerusalem was going to be an issue. He asked the king for papers to be given to the governor so he could get that. He had thought it through very carefully. And so he gets to the king and he presents this request. And as the king hears this, we come to this wonderful statement. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. If anything, Nehemiah understood the gracious hand of God. He understood grace. You see, at the very essence of Christianity is the message of God's grace. It's what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world is about earning God's favor. But Christianity is about a God who grants favor, unmerited favor. That's his gracious hand. And if you remember, Nehemiah said he understood the grace of God because he understood his own sin. Back in the first chapter, if you remember from last week, When Nehemiah prays, he starts with a prayer of confession. Look at what he says. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, and my father's house have committed against you. He started with that repentance. And then he also understood that it was God who would be the one not only to forgive, but God who would redeem. Go back to the first chapter. It was God who would redeem with his mighty hand. Nehemiah knew Isaiah 53. Nehemiah knew that one day Messiah was going to come, who was going to be the sin bearer. He understood all we like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. He understood that there was a suffering servant who was going to come to redeem him. And he understood how desperate he was for the grace of God. You see, that's the core of the Christian message is to recognize how desperate we are for his grace, no matter what. Well, it's a wonderful story of God's grace. The gracious hand of my God has given his favor to the king. He granted my request. Now, I want to take these next just a few minutes Here was Nehemiah facing the greatest opportunity and challenge of his life. Here we are, First Presbyterian Church. Without a doubt, in my mind, this is the greatest opportunity and challenge that this church has ever faced and will face in a generation. Decisions we make now are going to affect 
generations to come, years to come. This is major. And that's why it's so important that we do this right. Just as Nehemiah, he had to make sure this was a major challenge. So as I bring this application, I want you to think about it in light of Nehemiah, but I want you to think about it from us as a church, and I want to think about from your perspective as individuals, what are the difficulties, what are the challenges, what are the opportunities that God has before you right now? There are some of you here this morning who are facing overwhelming opportunities and challenges. There are some here this morning who are looking for the right job, seeking to find the right mate for your life, who are struggling in your marriages or with your children, who have financial issues, transitions. Whatever those opportunities are, how do we get a handle on them? And how do we as a church move forward into this major campaign? How do we move forward? And I'm going to tell you, you learn it from Nehemiah. And so I want us to look at these, just a few principles as we close this morning. And here's the first thing. If you're facing a major opportunity, a challenge in your life, or we as a church, what is the first thing we have to do? We have to identify the scope of the task. In other words, we've got to get a handle on the problem. We've got to get a handle on the opportunity. Second thing is, gather the necessary information. Did you notice, Nehemiah? Four months. Four months. He had a clearly thought-out plan. And I will tell you, that's what's been happening with uh, our leadership group here at the church has been going through and gathering necessary information for a year and a half. And I've been told that once we start moving forward, it's at least another year of gathering information. You have to get the information, get the full picture. Third thing, bathe the task in prayer. If anything you see from Nehemiah, it's prayer, 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 prayer. He starts out with prayer. When the king asks him what he wants, first things he does is he prays. We have to bathe this in prayer. If God is not in it, it won't happen. We need to seek his gracious hand. And so this morning, I want to give you as a congregation, we're facing this great opportunity. We need your prayers. We need your prayers. Bathe it task in prayer. Fourth, don't be afraid to make big plans. Develop a solid plan. Don't be afraid to make big plans. I had a friend who went to Atlanta. I was, just was with him in Orlando this week. And he went as a young single guy right out of seminary. He was one of my dearest friends. And he planted a church there. And his goal was to plant multiple churches in the Atlanta area. And he had a man come to him who said, make your vision so big that if God is not in it, it can't be done. And I want to tell you, he went there believing that, and it's amazing what this church has done in the city of Atlanta. We don't have to be afraid to make little plans. In fact, uh, if you've been through some of our presentations, uh, this is Daniel Burnham was the architect who did the City Beautiful movement in Chicago. And he said, make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's bloods and probably themselves will not be realized Make big plans, aim high in hope and work, remembering that a noble logical diagram, once recorded, will never die, but long after we're gone, be a living thing 
asserting itself with ever-growing insistency. And I want to tell you, when Nehemiah is looking at what his task is, this opportunity, it was huge, huge to rebuild a city. And I stop and look at us. I want to believe God wants us to aim high for his glory. I think about that. He has put us strategically right here in the center of this town and how we can influence and impact this city. We need to think about influencing the city. Next thing is don't let discouragement hold you back. Let me tell you something. Expect opposition. And I will say this to you. You know, I've been around. (laughs) I've been around doing this for a long time. 40-something years of preaching ministry. And I will tell you this. When I look back over my life, those times where there were the greatest opportunities to do something for the kingdom were the times that I experienced the greatest battles in my life spiritually. Because I will tell you this. When you're doing something significant for God, and I'm not just talking about what we're doing here as a church. I'm talking about in your life. If you are serious about your walk with Christ, if you're wanting to honor him, if you're wanting to grow as a Christian in your life, expect opposition. Richard will be showing us when you go on into the book of Nehemiah, he was opposed every time he turned around. He was opposed from within. He was opposed from without. There was opposition. Anything great that ever we attempt to accomplish for God, not for us, but for God, expect opposition and discouragement. And I want to tell you something. That's why we need to pray. And I would beg you all as a congregation, we need to be on our knees in prayer as we move forward here. Seeking God's wisdom, seeking God's direction, seeking God's favor. Most of all, how do we as the people of God that God strategically and sovereignly put right here in the heart of this city? You know, a decision was made a number of years ago by some of you that are in this room to stay downtown. And I believe that was a sovereign work of God. And I will say this, I've told this to Richard, and I mean this. This church has greater opportunity to influence this city better than any I know. And and with that comes huge responsibility. And so, don't let discouragement hold us back. Expect opposition and be ready to move forward as God opens the doors. And then here's the last thing. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You remember the writer to the Hebrews put this. He said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. Let me stop there. Do you know what the joy who was set before him is referring to? Us. We are Christ's joy. For the joy set before him, he looked at you and he looked at me in spite of all of our unworthiness, and we became the objects of his love in such a way that he was willing to endure the cross, scorning the shame, 
And when he had completed it, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the writer to the Hebrews says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I'm going to tell you, it matters what your focus is. Keep your eyes on him. There's a wonderful verse that has meant so much to me in Psalm chapter 16, verse 8. It says, when I set the Lord before my eyes, he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. It's all a matter of what your focus is. Whatever that big opportunity, that big decision, that big challenge, whatever those difficulties are, as big as they may seem, keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on him. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. And this morning, Lord, what better prayer could we say than this? Oh, Jesus, Jesus, let us keep our eyes on you. Let us trust you. Tis so sweet to trust you. And how I proved you o'er and o'er again in my life Precious Jesus, we give you thanks and make this prayer in your name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.